Well, in, in this session today, um, I want to talk about a second really uh, important shift in narrative that I think is really crucial to the Christian life. And, um, and, and I, I first want to say thanks to Sarah for that really wonderful talk that she gave. Um, you know, I, it's, it's fun to hear other people you, you don't know and get to know. And uh, so I, I sensed as I was listening uh, that same sort of depth that Dallas always had where I couldn't quite keep up with the thoughts. My pen wasn't fast enough to stay up with that. And also uh, your, your deep passion for the person which I hear echoed from Henry. So thank you for that. And, um, and one of the things that Sarah said, and, and this is what's great when you hear someone who has a lot of depth, is they say so many things that you could, you could stop and camp on just one of them for quite some time. But um, she said that Jesus was the great storyteller, which he was. Uh, he taught almost exclusively in stories. And that this, this favorite story, Sarah said, is, is about the kingdom. So with that in mind, I want to talk about the kingdom and living deep into the kingdom. And uh, I also recognize I've, I've drawn, as we would say in America, the short straw of doing the talk after lunch. So uh, my intention in this time together is not just to talk at you, but to engage with you and get you thinking about uh, your life and what God is calling you to do in terms of how to live deep into the kingdom. So I shared my own story, my journey of, of, of hearing uh, a reduced, shrunken version of the gospel that behind it has a, a narrative that's an un- unhealthy view of God, and then getting to the end of my rope, God's address, and praying that God would bring people, and God was faithful, in the form of, say, a, a Brennan Manning or uh, a George Herbert and some others. So my, my God narratives began to really shift in, in significant ways, and that was crucial. And out of that process, um, I, I wrote a book, the first sort of, I wrote a couple of books, but the first book that was about this subject was called Embracing the Love of God. And it's really about God's love. I wrote that book and it came out in 90, 1995. So I was really moving into this understanding of, of who God is and God's disposition towards us as a God of love. And it was in that same year that uh, I was, that that book was finished, I was waiting for it to come out, that I got a call from um, Fuller Seminary where I had done my doctoral work, and they called and said, um, Dallas Willard has been teaching this class called Spirituality and Ministry, and it's, it's kind of blown up, like it has more students signed up than we can handle. And when we told Dallas about that, and of course we would like to make some money, so we want a lot of students in the class. <laughs> and they'd let like 45 students into the class, which is crazy. And, and Dallas's only response was, well, I need a teaching assistant, because... Uh, I don't want to do this alone. There's too many people, and I want to make contact. And they said, well, who are you thinking? And he said, well, Jim. And so then Fuller people said, we know Jim. So uh, lo and behold, there was this invitation to be Dallas's teaching assistant for this two-week course. And so it was wonderful. I was excited to do it. We met at this lovely uh, monastery, Mater Dolorosa. That's where I first met Andrew. And the very first day, uh, very first day, in front of these 45, mostly people in ministry, Dallas just says to 
this group of ed- pretty educated people, right? They're getting, doing doctoral work. But he said, uh, what was Jesus' good news? What was Jesus' gospel? And lots of hands went up. You know, people in ministry like to talk. So lots of hands went up. There was no trouble getting people to talk in that group. Uh, and Dallas would just point and say, you know, and, and they would say variations on the, the theme of a substitutionary atonement kind of gospel. And Dallas would look at them and say, no, that wasn't Jesus' gospel. And the group would be like, and then someone else would raise their hand and he would point to them and then they would give some other variation on the theme of the same sort of thing, right? And they would talk and they were certain that they were the one that got it right and so excited to hear that. And then Dallas would go, no, that's, that's not the gospel of Jesus. And this would went on for about 10 minutes and now everyone's uncomfortable <laughs> at this point. And everyone also wants to really know, what does this guy think is Jesus' gospel? And what he said was, Jesus' gospel was that the kingdom of God is available to everyone. And that you can step in and into that kingdom right now. And the kingdom of God is an interactive life with God now. And he would go on over the next three days. He would have to spend three days because the narrative of the gospel being some version of substitutionary atonement uh, is so deeply embedded that he would have to spend three days unpacking Jesus' gospel, and in this case, proving it. And one of the things he would say early on was, you've been sharing with me what you think Jesus' gospel is. Find it in the gospels. Just take your time with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and show us where Jesus says that if you have the right understanding of the doctrine of atonement, you can go to heaven when you die. And he would let people, and people were flying through their Bibles, trying to find it. Of course, no one can, because you can't. He, he never says anything like it. Now, he did say... When I be lifted up, I will draw all people to me. That's true, but that's not that version of the gospel. And he did turn to the thief on the cross next to him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. But the thief, as far as we know, never did make a confession of faith in the doctrine of the atonement. So you simply can't do it. You can't make Jesus tell that story. So that's kind of problem number one. When a group of 45 people in ministry raised their hands and said, this is the gospel, and then you're asked to sort of establish it with Jesus himself, and you can't. And what Dallas would then do is, would be to say, well, okay, where did it come from? And over the next couple of days, because that's how long this is going to take, over the next couple of days, he would explain that that version of the gospel is built on four verses from Paul's epistles, and every one of those verses are taken out of context. So you have to find single verses, which in biblical studies is called a hapax. That's where you take a single verse and make it say what you want. So you have to, take, you have, to have four of these 
to make that gospel work. You have to take Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that appears to be establishing the sinfulness of all people. But if you look at Romans 3, what Paul's saying is he's really, he, the subject of the context of Romans 3 is does the Jew have any advantage over the Gentile? And Paul says, no, there's no advantage. Because that was an assumption. That was a narrative that was really hard for a lot of the Jewish people to say, we're God's people. Why are the Gentiles coming in? <laughs> this is really throwing us off. And Paul's saying, well, does, is there any advantage in that? No, actually, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, the, so it's not building uh, any sort of foundation on original sin. And on and on it goes. I could unpack the four. That's not important. But... Uh, the, the idea is that if you want to ask the question, what was Jesus' good news? It's quite simple and quite obvious. Exactly what Sarah said. His favorite story is the kingdom of God. Now that's going to then beg another question, which is, if that's true, why don't we hear about it? And in the divine conspiracy... Dallas lists two important figures in the 20th century in Christianity, Michael Green and Peter Wagner, both who make the statement that in their lifetime they never heard a single sermon on the kingdom of God. Two eminent theologians and evangelists in the church said, I never heard a single sermon. So then you have to ask the question, well, how do we get there? How do we get to where the kingdom's at? And the answer to that happened in the the seeds of it are in the 19th century, where in seminaries they began to teach that the kingdom of God surely has not come because the world isn't perfect. So the evidence, is the kingdom here? No, look at the brokenness of the world. Oh yeah, it's still messed up, so the kingdom's not here. Okay, move on, which which essentially discards the kingdom out of the discussion. So I teach a class on Christian spiritual formation, and that's the first essay I make my students write. How do you establish the reality of the kingdom in a broken world? And the answer is, the kingdom is alive and well in the midst of this broken world. As I said earlier, the kingdom is never in trouble, because what is the kingdom? It's a with God life. It's an interactive life with God now. And it's not at risk because the world isn't perfect. It's every bit as real as when Jesus said to it, said that it was here, and his disciples stepped into it. And they came back and said, Lord, even the demons are responding. We don't even know what to do with his power. So the kingdom of God is Jesus' gospel. The kingdom of God is Jesus' conspiracy to transform the world. He's inviting people into an interactive life with God now. And in the process of stepping into that reality, we become all new people who have the power and the protection and the provision of that kingdom in everything that we do. And it's been marching on from the beginning. I teach a class in church history and... One of the things that's very obvious if you become a student of church history 
is that all of the great movements within the history of the church were when people got aligned with the kingdom. You can't name one of them that is an exception. Just name it and you'll see, oh, somebody figured out how to interactively work with the kingdom of God. And they did that thing. And then sometimes we put ST period in front of their name because they figured it out. (laughs) Or we revere them and then we make statues of them. And remember what they once did. As I mentioned, um, I'm a United Methodist because of John Wesley. And the Wesleyan movement was absolutely outrageous when you think of what happened in a single century. It's amazing what happened. Turned a country upside down. The transformation was so stunning that people did not know what to do with this. And what's fascinating is when you study the movement, you see, and, and Sarah really touched on this as well, what you see in, in a movement just like Methodism in the, in, the, in the 18th century is you see that it wasn't built on money, prestige, power, or credentials. It wasn't built on those things. And in fact, if you look at the history of the church, you'll see that we are at our best when we have the least of those things. And yet we still think, well, we've got to get more of those things. We need more people, more money, more prestige, more credentials. We need to have all these things, and then God can do something. It's never been that way. It's never been that way. Wesley was raised as a good Anglican. His father and grandfather were Anglican ministers raised within the church, and then he happened to have this incredibly powerful experience of the gospel and stepped into this life and then began preaching and teaching it. And the Church of England in his day said, you can't, you can't teach that, John. We're going to actually shut the church to you. You can't. And that was very hard for him to hear, and he went, well, oh, okay, what will I do? And he was connected to his good friend George Whitfield. And, of course, his brother Charles, that dude could write some hymns. About 4,000, I think he wrote. And, and, uh, and they just went, well, what are we going to do? And, and Wesley said, well, they can't. They, they closed the, ch- the church to us, but they, they can't close the countryside. So in, Res- in Wesley's journal, he wrote this. I love this line. He wrote, he wrote I resolved to become vile for the gospel. Because as a good Anglican, you know, that was just, he wanted to wear the cool clothes in the cool church with the stained glass. And they said, you can't. So he went to the countryside, and 5,000 people would hear this message of life in the kingdom, of a good and beautiful God. And England gets turned upside down. In the 1740s, when, when, they were, when, the, when the movement was really taking on, it's, it's been estimated that the average Londoner drank a barrel of gin a year. That's probably hard for an Australian. That's a lot of gin. And so alcoholism was a huge problem. And, 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 and they didn't know what to do because the Methodist movement just took over within the country and people were being transformed. And people of all social classes were gathered together. So the really rich and the really poor, like coal miners 
And people who were from the upper class were in groups together, in Wesley's classes, groups of 12. And Wesley had to, had to learn things. Like he said, he had one of the rules of the early Methodists was not to wear costly jewelry. And we can look at that and go, that's legalistic. But the reason was is because the upper class people who had very costly jewelry, you know, you know when you went, that that was going to cause a distance between them and the poor people. So they just didn't do it. So the movement was fascinating, right? And you look at church history and you think, look what they did. They didn't have any money. And look what they did. Because the kingdom is never in trouble and it's always at work. It's always on the move. And at the end of uh, Wesley's life, the very last letter that Wesley wrote, he wrote to William Wilberforce. And um, if you don't know the story of William Wilberforce, he's the man credited with ending slavery in England. He was a politician. He felt called by that. Strong Christian, strong believer. But in Wesley's letter to Wilberforce, he says, you cannot do this. I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, you can't do this work because men and demons will conspire against you. You don't have the power to accomplish this. But God is with you. And you can accomplish this. And even more, maybe you can be the one who helps to end slavery in the United States, which Wesley added at the end of his letter, which is the vilest form of slavery he's ever seen. And Wilberforce did. Right? Quite fascinating. So the 18th century, like crazy th things are happening because the kingdom's here. Amazing things. And then you move, move forward uh, into the 19th century and a man named George Mueller. George Mueller was... Um, he, was a, he was a bad kid. Like, he was so bad, his dad, like, basically said, I'm done with you, and had kicked him out. He was a rabble-rouser, and he didn't, he, he was, he, anyway. And so he, he wanted to fight in the war. He wanted, to, he, he wanted to go be a soldier. And as he's about to do that, he gets really sick. And this is kind of like St. Francis' story, if you know St. Francis. He gets really sick, and while he's in his convalescent bed, Jesus appears to him and, and has a vision. And gives, Wilbur, and gives Mueller this vision um, that he's going to transform the world by reaching out to the poor. And so by virtue of his sickness, he couldn't actually go fight in battle, which allowed him to go do this work, and he went ahead and did this work. And this is what God told him. God said, I want you to, I'm calling you to this work, and particularly to care for the poor, and particularly for the orphans, which is straight out of Jesus' teaching. And he said, I'm calling you to this work, but I don't want you ever to ask for money. Like, like, never? Yet don't ever, don't ever ask for money to do this. So he did. It's amazing. George Mueller cared for over 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. He built 117 schools to educate the poor. 120,000 students, poor students who couldn't afford to go to school, went through Mueller's school and changed the world because of it. And, and it, the, Mueller's work was so profound that he was, quote, accused of raising the poor above their natural state. <laughs> Isn't that great? Well, this Mueller fella, he's not letting the poor just be poor, which is their natural state. He's actually finding funding and educating them. 
And if you read Mueller's journal, which I recommend, uh, it's just so encouraging because there's all these stories where they're kind of at the end of of their rope, right, waiting for funding for various things, like the, the orphans don't have food and they're just right at the end. And there's all these stories of provision. So it goes on and on and on. And that's the reality of this world that we're talking about. And it continues to go on and on because it's here today now. This amazing life of living deep into the kingdom is here. One of my former students who's a dear friend, I've been working with him a long time, named Matt Johnson, he and his wife Catherine felt a real calling to reach out to the poorer sections of our town in Wichita, Kansas. And so the first thing they did was they moved into South Central Wichita, which is one of the poorer parts of the city. So they intentionally moved into South Central, and they started a movement called SOCI for South Central, SOCI Life. And what they did was they they chose to go around a 10-block radius within their neighborhood and knock on every door and get to know the people in their neighborhood. And, of course, that was met with a lot of slam doors, you can imagine. But they sort of kept at it, and they, they would just, and if people did invite them in, they would say, tell me your story. And they'd tell their story, and they'd say, what are you good at? Like, what, are you, what gifts has God given you? And these amazing stories would happen. And, and then they would step back, and they'd take these notes, and they'd get together. They'd join with another couple, and they um, would pull together everything they'd been learning. And they'd find out that this person... Um, had some financial resources for, for some things, but had physical disabilities. And this person was the opposite, and they put the two of them together. So he's mowing her lawn, and she's providing for things that he needs, and on and on and on. And this movement grew so much it gained national attention. So now Soci Life, they get to travel around the country and talk about this. But they didn't do it because they had money and credentials and all, all the things that you think you need to do. They had nothing except a calling, except uh, this vision to do something amazing. And it's not always just these kinds of social justice kinds of movements. It's also just living a, a, a life in the kingdom, which is trusting in God to be with us. So uh, a good friend of mine who I do a lot of work with now, Becky Willard Heatley, Dallas's daughter, this past summer she was diagnosed um, with cancer in her thyroid. And uh, in all of the correspondence throughout the summer and into the fall, she was constantly blessing me with what God was teaching her and what she was learning and how she was growing in confidence and trust. And all is this, this to say is because she was living deep in the kingdom, living deep in the kingdom. And that's what I am talking with you about this afternoon, living deep into the kingdom of God. Jesus' gospel, as I said, was you can live an interactive life with God now. And I said this last night, Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God over a hundred times. Depends on how you want to define it, wherever you find the word kingdom, kingdom of the heavens, kingdom of God. You can come up with around 122 if you want, but easily over a hundred times he talked about the kingdom. And Paul used the term in Christ or Christ in us uh, 89 times. And, I, and people say, why doesn't Paul talk about the kingdom more? Well, he does talk about the kingdom. Um, but Paul, you have to understand the context of his ministry, was really stepping outside of Judaism. And so 
for Paul, I believe, in Christ or Christ in us is synonymous with the kingdom. That was just language he chose to use. Because talk about an interactive life with God. If Christ is in me and I'm in Christ, and if the kingdom is an interactive life with God, you can't get more with than that. So um, the New Testament is clearly focusing on that, on this idea that God is going to live intimately in each one of us and has power beyond what we can imagine. So the second great shift for me was, first of all, I needed to understand that we have a good and beautiful God who's loving at all times, the kind of God in Herbert's poem. But the second shift for me was also to realize that life in the kingdom of God really is the gospel. And when you understand that, it completely changes the Christian life. Because the problem with some of those other versions of the gospel, particularly some versions of substitutionary atonement, they're not a gospel for life. They're a gospel for the afterlife. They're not a gospel that naturally leads to discipleship. And they're not a gospel that naturally leads one to step in and say, what could I do if I knew God were with me? What could I do if I knew that God was calling me to it and empowering me to do it. So that's what I want to pause now and give you a few minutes to reflect on that. And here's the question I want you to reflect on. And I'm going to frame it in such a way, okay? Here's how I want you to think about it. Is there something that you sense God is calling you to do? What might that be? And then here's the part. If you knew, if I had a crystal ball, if you knew that you would succeed, what would you attempt? In other words, you see, I'm asking you to say, okay, what, what stirring do I have? Like, what is it I have felt some calling to do? Doesn't have to be as grandiose as helping end slavery in a country. <laughs> maybe it's something more, you know, localized. Or maybe it's something like in Becky's case, a challenge that God has, has encouraged you, you to live deep into the kingdom with this life situation. I don't know what it is. But whatever it is, what is it that you sense, this would be what I would do if I, if I had the confidence that God was with me and that I could see, succeed in doing it, okay? So just take, let's take about five minutes to reflect on that. And, um, and then in a couple of minutes, I'll have you uh, interact with your neighbor on what that might be, okay? Are we clear on what I'm asking you to do? What might you attempt, okay? Let me just, a couple of observations, because um, this is what I've been doing for quite some time, and what how my life has worked. And I just want to offer you um, four things to think about with whatever it is that you're feeling called to. And, and the first one is dealing with what we've already been doing, and that is to, um, to develop a vision. To develop a vision. And let me just say a little bit more about what that vision always needs to do, is that ultimately the vision adds value or value added. That's an important phrase to write down, adds value. 
Because if it is of God, it's going to do that. So obviously with Mueller, let's see, let's, <laughs> let's go ahead and make a difference in, oh, I don't know, 10,000 orphans. Yeah, that's going to add value, right? Um, or wipe out slavery. Yeah, that's going to add value. But whatever it is, what's the value added to the vision? That the vision does something. Okay, so the value added is really important. And second is assemble people around you. Assemble people around you to help you make this happen. And certainly we do it by prayer. Uh, we, we, we ask for, to, for God to bring the people, but we also have our eyes open and our ears open. And we just find people who have the same passion and vision and heart. Find those people because you can't do any of these things alone. Wesley did them, that movement didn't happen by Wesley. Uh, Mueller's work, Wilberforce's work didn't happen by, by them. So it's always a team of people. And, and this is a phrase I often say, human capital is much more important than financial capital. Human capital is way more important than financial capital. And I actually don't believe financial capital is that hard to find, but I believe it's very hard to find human capital, to find really good people who are skilled and passionate and have the same. So, so people is second, right? A team of people to be with you. The third thing is to begin to think about who are the beneficiaries of this vision, who benefits from it? Who ultimately, if this vision comes to become a reality, who is the, who is the beneficiary? And by that, it may not necessarily be, mean someone who directly benefits in a worldly kind of way. But benefits, and sometimes it will be. Sometimes it will be. But, but who is it? Because in, in, the, in the case of like Mueller, um, there were several wealthy widows who once they caught any kind of vision for what he was doing, they wanted to help him because they, they, uh, their heart meant that, right? They, that's what they felt called to be. And so when they saw, that's what he's doing? That's a, that's a benefit to me because I believe in that, right? So who are the beneficiaries? And so the example I gave of Matt and Catherine and Sosi Life in Wichita, guess who caught on after a year? The Wichita Chamber of Commerce. And the local politicians went, um, these people that don't have any money are actually doing what none of us in politics have been able to do. <laughs> and they kind, of, they kind of woke up and went, maybe we should talk to them. Because we're like trying to legislate stuff and it's not working. So maybe we need to figure that out. So who are the beneficiaries? And then the fourth thing is, is provision. Fourth thing is that's when you do seek the provision. And if you can do it, if you want to do it Mueller's way and just pray, that can happen. Um, but I do want to just say this. Notice that it comes last, particularly if it's financial provision. It comes last. Most people think it comes first. Like, I'm going to get an idea, and then I'm going to go see if I can get money. It, it's actually the last thing you do. And that strategy has been, I believe it's a kingdom strategy, has been what I've used personally in the work I've done in the last 11 years. And um, we've started a number of programs, and that is the way, what I just listed to you, that that's happened for me. Catch a vision, 
see what the value added is, find the people, begin to discover the beneficiaries, and then in whatever form seek the money. And so I, I share that with you to say that over the course of the last 10 years, following that strategy, um, the, the work that I've done, we've received over $5 million. And I shared that last because it's the least important thing. It really, that is not the most important thing. Now, that's the thing that gets the people's interest. They go, holy cow, that guy got $5 million. It's the least important thing. The provision comes when the vision is set. When you've got that and you say, it's back to it, right? What was Wesley's letter to Wilberforce? You got it going on here. You'll never accomplish this unless you know God is with you. And God will make it happen. But that's how this process works. See, I really sense that, uh, that Aslan is afoot in Australia. And seeing you and being a part of this and knowing a bit of the history with, um, with John and Andrew and Graham and being here, my very clear sense is that amazing things will come out of this gathering. This gathering and on the scheme of things, they're not gonna, we're not going to make the, well, I would say New York Times. What's your big paper? What's your big paper here? Cindy Morning Herald? Yeah, likely they're not going to be covering what happened this weekend. That's okay. But the impact of what's happened here this weekend at this very first formation gathering looked right at you, John. I believe things are going to happen. The things that you're sharing, the things that are, but we needed to come together and be together and affirm what's happening and realize that that it's the kingdom that's driving all of this and go forth with that. Okay.